Hello, welcome everyone. We are very honored to have Dr. John Greenberg here today, who will be presenting on how the discoveries of Isaac Newton and Ferdinand Majan changed the halakhic definitions of up and down. This event is a part of our Science in Torah series, co-sponsored by Sinai and Synapses of the Scientists and Synagogues program. Dr. John Greenberg earned his doctorate in agronomy at Cornell University and studied with Rabbi Chaim Bravender at Yeshiva Hamidbar. He conducted research at the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the University of Pennsylvania and has taught at the Abraham Joshua Heschel School in New York since 2008. Dr. John Greenberg has been presenting his Torah Flora Biblical Ethnobotany programs throughout North America and Israel since 2005. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Dr. Greenberg. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm gonna be telling uh, about four or five stories today, depending how much uh, how many I can fit into the time available. But I should give you a little bit of background and framework for what it is that, that I've been doing. Torah Flora is a program that I developed as I was learning more both about agronomy and um, agriculture and history of food and agriculture, and also beginning to learn Torah more seriously at the same time. And I began to find increasing numbers of connections between these areas of knowledge uh, to the point that I became convinced that there are many areas where we really can't understand the pshat, the basic meaning of many Torah-related texts without some understanding of the, the context in terms of the um, natural history and agriculture and the, and the customs of the time that, that are being talked about. Um, and there are many examples of this, but we're gonna focus on one type of situation in particular today, which has to do with situations where new information comes to light that may challenge or be uh, difficult to deal with in terms of uh, existing halakhic understanding of, of various situations that, that it has implications for. So the first one we're gonna look at begins in the early 1800s. Despite the title, this is long after Columbus and Magellan uh, had their voyages. Um, um, most, uh, I would say, well-educated people by that time had accepted the idea that the Earth is roughly spherical. Um, and uh, there wasn't much dispute about this. But there were still, in terms of the folk beliefs, there were so many people who clung to older ideas about a flat Earth or, or other kinds of visions of how these things work. Uh, now, by this time, we're talking about the early 1800s, there was a significant but small Jewish presence in the Americas, mostly Sephardic in the Caribbean, uh, to some extent in Latin America, and in um, some parts of what would later become what, the Eastern United States already by that point. Okay, and as a result, etrogen were beginning to be grown for their use in the Caribbean and in California by the 1830s, and also in Australia, where there was already a small Jewish presence as well. Now, there's a principle in halakha that applies to, um, to the mitzvah d'arba minim, where we use the, the etrog along with the other part, lulav and so on, on Sukkot, that any, but it's a general principle that, that implies in principle beyond that. Any plant items that we use for the purpose of a mitzvah must be oriented during the performance of the mitzvah in the same way in which they grew. So if you think about it, when you take your abraminum, you have lulav pointing up, the, lula, the leaves growing in the direction that they, that they grew. And likewise, with, I have to make this a little louder. Okay, and likewise, um, the, the hadassim and the uh, aravot. And the etrog is also, we, we turn it upside down initially until we make the brach, and then we turn it right side up. to so Everything is meant to be in the orientation in which it was grown. Now, around 1832, is a rabbi Etlinger, Yaakov Etlinger in Germany, 
published a, a, a book called uh, Bikure Yaakov, in which he asked the following question and answered it. His concern was, given this halacha, what happens if someone were to take some of these etrogim that are grown in what were then new areas of cultivation from the Caribbean or from Australia, from California, and bring them back to Europe where he lived, could they be used on Sukkot for the Arbaminim? The concern was, given the idea that the earth is approximately spherical, and we look at the angle between the different directions, then we see that from the perspective of Rabbi Edlinger in Germany, uh, Caribbean etrogim were about 90 degrees longitude off of vertical from his perspective, and the ones in, in Australia were upside down. So could this be used? And would you have to hold it sideways or upside down? Or how, how would you use this? Um, and he struggled with it for a while. And the conclusion he came to was that it was perfectly OK to use them. And the reason that he came to this conclusion, and I'll show you on my PowerPoint here so you can see more graphically. And we can look at what he actually wrote. Here we go. OK, here. OK. so. What he, what he suggested was that we have to overcome an earlier subjective concept of up and down. And this was certainly sufficient for earlier generations. However, once we understand the shape of the earth, and that's Magellan there, and Newton, of course, contributing a new idea, that objects do not fall when they're unsupported simply because they are, it's in the nature of objects to fall, which was the earlier belief, but rather because there is a force acting on them. And large masses produce large forces. Planets, such as the Earth, produce a large force that we call gravity. And it pulls other masses in from all directions, as you see on the right here. So which way is up and which way is down? The earlier way was defined subjectively. If I stand up, down is toward my feet. And up is toward my head. Well, that's fine for your immediate experience. But as you can see on the right there, the person on the top here, for example, this. Uh, woman in the, in the purple shirt here. So her up is, of course, the down of the person on the bottom here and vice versa. Now, this is something we all learn in elementary school nowadays and take for granted, but it was a new idea uh, for many people who are not steeped in secular knowledge. And Rabbi Edner concluded that we should simply redefine up and down then from the subjective definition to a more geographic, more physical one, physics-oriented one uh, in his day. And on this basis, we are permitted to use etrogum from anywhere in the world. And we can actually have a translation here, which I will show you in just a moment here, of his actual words. Okay, I don't have the original text, but there's a bibliography it was distributed. You can look up the original if you like. Yeah, let's take a look at what he actually said. It's a quotation, right? So Rishim Bar Yochai in Masechet Sukkot says, almost it must be performed in the manner in which they were grown. Okay. So he says, what about Lula Retro grown away in a faraway America or Australia? Can we use such an item which sprouted in the antipode of one's current location? So he, did, he, he tosses it back and forth, and then he concludes, as you can see at the bottom here, he says, um, he talks about the scientists. He says, the scientists write, their feet are opposite our own, and they are prevented from falling into space because God placed the force of gravity on the earth. Notice how he, he, he merges his religious perspective with his understanding of Newtonian physics here. So if we were to use the species grown there, they would perhaps be considered the reverse of the manner in which they grew, because from our perspective, the top of the level Hadas grew farther down than the bottom. On the other hand, he concludes, since they are taking the manner in which they grew in relation to the ground, so that was the key transition here to move from our subjective 
understanding to one uh, ge more geological, geographic. This is derech dilatan, the, the, the direction in which they grew. And therefore, he concludes, we don't need to worry about this. This is perfectly fine. Unfortunately, in the bitter debates of the 19th century in the, with the nascent uh, reform movement um, on hostile terms with more traditional um, rabbinic authorities, this became an object of ridicule uh, in, in reform circles. And later it was defended by, by other rabbis who claimed that this was a legitimate question. And unfortunately, there was more heat than light here because you can see in his words, he concluded that there's no concern at all, but people who are looking for trouble were able to find it. So this I think is a model for many of these disputes, uh, these, these challenges to traditional understanding. If you're looking for trouble, you can find it, but in many cases, you don't have to, and you can find solutions that, um, that will work just fine. So what is the basis for this kind of reconsideration? He doesn't give any authority here, Let's stop sharing. Does anyone see this the whole time? He doesn't cite anyone, as you can see there, for the authority for permission to do this, to reinterpret a classical understanding. But there are numerous authorities uh, who support this approach. For example, a classic one was early on articulated by Rabbi Sadia Gaon. So this is back in the Gaonic period, uh, late after the Roman, but early, early medieval, I guess we could say, what was sometimes called the Dark Ages. And he identifies four situations in which, is that a note from me there? No, it's earlier, okay. It, four situations in which um, you might need to change the way you understand a biblical verse or, or some statement in the Talmud. Let's take a look at what they are. Okay, so I'm gonna bring that up. Let's see, here's Sadia, okay. So we wanna share this one. Here it is, okay. So here he says, well, um, in general, we should understand the pshat, the, the plain sense of any biblical text, says, except for those that cannot be so construed for the following four reasons. So what are the exceptions? Number one, you may be rejected by the observation of the senses. If, it, if you have a pshat, an interpretation of a biblical passage or a statement in the Talmud that just is a plain conflict with everyday experience, we know that can't be right. It doesn't mean that the Torah is wrong. It means you, your understanding of it has to change. So it's a challenge to raise the bar on our understanding. Second possibility, it's negated by reason. It just makes no sense. It may not be something we observe the contrary, but it just is illogically, we can't accept the, the concept that seems to come out of there. Okay, and then two other possibilities. If we have another verse somewhere that seems to contradict it, then we need to either find a non-literal understanding of, of one of these two conflicting statements or find some other way to harmonize them, which the Talmud does quite often. And finally, he has one more reservation, he says, if we have uh, a traditional understanding of a particular verse um, that's codified as Masorah, then we do not change this. So for example, the fact that the Torah says three times that uh, mixtures of meat and milk are forbidden, we have an understanding that there are three specific prohibitions there, cooking them together, eating them together, or um, obtaining any benefit from the mixture. So if there's a specific traditional interpretation like that, then with, with halachic, consequences if we keep that. But in these other situations, he permits us to, to change our understanding. So many cases where science seems to challenge our traditional understanding, this doesn't mean that science is in conflict necessarily with Torah. It may mean that we need to reinterpret some aspect of the Torah uh, so it makes sense in, in the context of our experience. What was reasonable for earlier generations may not be reasonable for our own. 
Here's an interesting example where this sort of went back and forth. Another one also related to uh, the etrog, but a different issue. Um, the Talmud discusses, here, let's look at the, I have this in translation just to make it easier for everybody to see, the, the relevant verse here in Vayikra about the Arbaminim. Okay, so here's the basis of our Arbaminim, and you can see this is familiar to many of you, all right? The fruit of a beautiful tree, pre eats Hadar. Hadar just meaning beautiful. Hidor is to beautify. So what is this beautiful tree? So that's a question. So the Talmud asks in Masechet Sukkah, what, what is this beautiful tree and how do you know? So various explanations are given of why it should be the Etrog. Um, different Midrashim, one based on, interestingly enough, Midrash based on the Greek word Hidor, meaning water. Uh, where we get hydro from, and therefore, because, because it, it will accept all kinds of sources of water. Um, the other one, that Hadar, it stays on the tree a long time, up to two years. So it's Hadar, that it's, it, it dwells on the tree. Various midrashim like this. What we do not see is any minority opinion. There is no one in the Talmud who says, no, it's not the Yetrog, it's this other thing. They consider, could it be a pepper? And then they said, that's black pepper. That's ridiculous. It's so tiny. But no one actually says that it is. They just explain why it's not. So the Rambam says, well, in a situation like this, and cites this example in particular, when there is no minority opinion, we treat this as something as equivalent to halacha mimosha b'sinai. It's something that has always been the practice of the Jewish people from the time that we got this. So we never used anything but an etrog for this purpose. So that's where things stood until the late 1800s. At that time, um, a scientist in Russia named Vavilov developed a new field of study. He became interested in the origins of all the domesticated plants and animals that we use in agriculture. Where do they all come from? And he did various kinds of research, genetic and historical and so on, and tracked them down to what he called several centers of origin. For example, in the Middle East was a center of origin, the Fertile Crescent. And from there we get uh, wheat and barley and probably oats and lentils and certain spices and so on. In the river valleys of Eastern China, citrus and rice. In Peru, potatoes. In Mexico, tomatoes, um, corn and peppers. So different parts of the world were the centers of origin of these things. And as they were domesticated, uh, they were people bred them to have the characteristics they wanted. And so they uh, began to be different from the wild version of these. So what about the etro? So Vavilov's research was unable to turn up any examples, historical or archeological evidence of the presence of the Etrog in the Middle East before about the fifth century BCE. So he concluded whatever it was that Jews were using for their Arbaminim, for their, for their Priyat Sadar before the destruction of the first temple, it wasn't an Etrog because there was no evidence of it being there. So this became known as the Etrog problem. And it was something that nobody really wanted to talk about. If you've talked to professors of Jewish studies who took history and archaeology seriously, but also wanted to be Jewishly observant, they didn't want to deal with it. They, you ask them about it, and they kind of stare at their shoes, and no one knew what to say. This is where things stood until about the time of the first Gulf War in Iraq. Now, I've known a, a small number of archaeologists. I've met a few of them. They all seem like very rational people. But there was a group at this time. I don't know why they did this. They saw that war was breaking out in the Gulf and in Iraq, and they said, you know, this is a great time. We should go on a dig in Iraq now. Who knows why? But they did. They dug up an ancient village in northern Iraq, and they found 4,500-year-old dried-out 
petrified uh, etrog seeds. So this was much farther west and much earlier than anyone had ever found uh, physical remains of Etrogan before. There was some evidence from the uh, uh, wall paintings and some of the, the pyramids that there may have been Etrogan there, but it was absolutely clear that that's what was being depicted. It may have been lemons or something else. It's hard to tell. And it wasn't the fruit itself. It was just a picture. So this kind of raised the question again, maybe it's not so simple. Maybe we did have Etrogan way back then. And later there was some DNA evidence that came out showing that uh, the Buddha's hand, as some of you may be familiar with this type of etrog, it, it has branches like fingers. It's used in, in Chinese medicine and cooking. Um, it was thought to be the original etrog, and then uh, DNA studies revealed that it's not so simple, that the other types are just as old, and the etrog type may be just as old as, as the Buddha's hand citron. So the picture became a lot less clear, but a lot more open to the possibility of etrogum in the Middle East. The final interesting um, story, uh, page in this story developed uh, about 20 years ago at an archaeological dig near, at a site near the, near, it's in Jerusalem today, I believe, but it was at the site, it was outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem called Ramat Rachel. This is a, an artist's reconstruction of what they think this beautiful estate or villa looked like um, in that location before it was destroyed. It apparently was, uh, fell apart sometime after the destruction of Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonians. So, and its inhabitants who are believed to have been Israelites were apparently allowed to continue living there under Babylonian occupation well past the destruction of the temple. We don't know the details of the political arrangement. However, uh, this is what they think it looked like. And the walls are believed to have been whitewashed with plaster, which in that dry environment can last quite a while. Now, uh, as you see today, even in, in um, Arab farms and, and villages, it's common to build a kind of formal garden in that part. And they, they, they found the remains of a formal garden there, usually with a nut tree in the center. There's an allusion to this in, um, in Shirashirim about the nut garden. It's not, a, it's not a garden of nut trees. It's a garden with a nut tree in the center and then various spice and fruit and herb plants arranged formally and geometrically around it. So they found this area and they wanted to know what these wealthy people in this house were growing for themselves or just to show off. Um, ostentation is a big deal if you can grow exotic plants from outside the area, that was sort of a prestige thing to do. Now that one of the ways you can do this is you dig up the ancient soil and you extract ancient pollen from there. Pollen grains have a surface layer that's extremely resistant to decay. It can exist for tens of thousands of years. And it can, these can be used to reconstruct ancient climates because you can see what was growing in the area at an earlier time and see what the climate must have been like. Uh, for example, it's been determined from this that Alaska at one time, tens of thousands of years ago before the ice ages, um, had a sort of subtropical climate based on the kinds of pollen that were found there. So they dug up some of the soil from the garden, they analyzed the pond, and they found some, they found a lot of different things. Many of these plants were indeed exotic species, not typical of the area. So that was sort of a prestige thing that these wealthy people could do. They also found the pollen of date palms, willows, and, um, and myrtle. So three of the four species. So it really was begging the question, come on, we found three, the fourth one's gotta be here, where's the etrog? Did they really have the etrog at the time? Of, of the destruction of the first temple before Vavilev thought they did. So they weren't finding it in the garden soil. And someone had a very clever idea. 
As I mentioned before, the walls of this building were whitewashed with plaster. And one of the archeologists had an idea. He said, you know what? It could be that some of this plaster was applied in the springtime. And if it was, any pollen that was in the air at the time floating around could have gotten stuck in it. And if we take samples of the plaster, maybe we can extract pollen of other species that we didn't find in the soil. So they did exactly that. You can dissolve away the plaster with an acid and the pollen is resistant to it. And sure enough, they found it. They found etrog pollen. Uh, so this is late first temple period now. Um, etrog pollen in Jerusalem. So that was really clinching evidence. Now, at this point, if we were in a live event, somebody would say, yay! And I would say, why are you saying yay? This is what I call the Rorschach test or attitudes on science and Torah. What are we concerned about here? Do we need to wait for an archeologist to give us the okay before we get our arbaminim? Are we concerned maybe it wasn't there? The Rambam says we have everything we need. The Talmud has one opinion, we all follow it, that it was etrog. Science requires physical evidence. It doesn't appear on demand. It appears when you dig and dig and you find it. And sometimes you don't find it or sometimes someone finds it a hundred years later. So science will eventually come up with a very solid story but it may take a long time to get there. And while we're waiting, we have the Gemara, we have the Rambam, we have our traditional understanding of that passage from the Torah that tells us to use, creates Hadar, which we understand to be an etro. So what else do we need? Now, not everybody agrees with this. Some people feel better about it when they get some confirmation from science. So I, it, you can look at this in many different ways. Is it a test of Amuna? Is it a test of your attitude of science? Um, my feeling is, you know, science will get there on its own terms. It has its own integrity, and so does Torah. And we should feel comfortable and secure in using the traditional etrog as, as people, as our ancestors always have. Um, when the scientists discover evidence of it, they'll, they'll believe it too. Whether they will actually become observant at that time is anybody's guess. My guess is probably not. Okay, so that's the etrog problem. Here's another one about another sort of longstanding controversy. I, this one's more like about 500 years uh, controversy. Um, with the appearance of the Zohar in the, um, the Tzfat period, a whole new public, publicly available mystical um, trend in Judaism became much more available and popular, and it became widely popular at that time, especially after the downfall of Shabtai Tzvi and disillusionment, and people sought, sought mystical explanations of what was going on. And a debate developed that really to this day continues. How do we understand the Talmud? So the sort of uh, Litvash, Litvish tradition, the Lithuanian tradition is, we, it means exactly what it says. So whenever we see something in the Talmud that um, describes some physical situation, we take it to mean exactly what it says. The mystical approach is that all of this exoteric, explicit, halachic, practical discussion, the Talmud is really an illusion to some deeper metaphysical reality. And sometimes we may see statements that conflict with what we believe to be accurate on the basis of scientific evidence or our own experience. That's okay. The physical examples are only there as a kind of platonic example of some ideal that's, that's, that's more mysterious. It doesn't really matter whether the, that, that, that claim of, of um, physical reality is accurate or not because the real subject of study in the Talmud is something deeper and metaphysical that is only known to the Mekubalim. And so we shouldn't worry about the exoteric, the, the explicit concrete kind of um, 
implications. Now, there are also other aspects besides mystical and rational. There's also arguments that we can understand in terms of social policy and other kinds of approaches. So I'm going to show you an example here of a passage that is an interesting example and comes in sort of unexpected directions. Uh, this is from Masechet Horayot, which is not widely read. It's a small Masechta of uh, what in legal terms are called dicta. So let me set this one up for you to see. And we'll take a look at this. Really, this is a weird passage. Some of you have already had dinner. I apologize to you. Uh, those of you who are in earlier time zones, this shouldn't be such a problem if you haven't eaten yet. It's a little gross. Okay, here it is. So here I have it in the Aramaic and the English here. So this passage is discussing uh, what appear to be some folk beliefs or folk medical beliefs about things that people might do or eat that have, are thought to have an effect on memory. And memory, of course, in this context, in the Talmud, we're talking about uh, memory retaining our Torah learning. Okay, so let's, for the sake of time and so everybody can understand, we're going to focus on the English part here. You see the tough race at the beginning of the Hebrew there, Tanu Rabbanan, meaning the rabbis taught in a baraita. That's a, a post Mishnaic statement that didn't make the cut to get into the Mishnah, but it's recorded in the Talmud, in the, in the Gemara. Okay, five things that can cause someone to forget their learning. Number one, if you eat something that a mouse or cat has nibbled on, not that we'd ever do that. Number two, someone who eats an animal's heart. Number three, someone who often eats olives. So you can see in the, in the Aramaic, haragil bezeitim, someone who is accustomed to or who regularly eats olives. Someone who drinks bathroom. This does not mean what it sounds like. It's, it's not as disgusting as that. It probably refers to water that was heated up to because they didn't have hot and cold running water, heated up for a bath and was left over. It wasn't used in the bath. So you held extra hot water that was still clean. You might use that to make a kind of tea or something. You might drink that. That was thought to, inter to interfere with memory. And someone who washes his feet one on top of the other. This may relate to uh, positions that the Kohanim used to take uh, during Duchening or something like that. It's not clear what the significance of that is. And somebody else chimes in. Well, e also, if you roll up your clothes to put under your head like a pillow, that you're going to forget your learning. So this is all kind of weird, right? Here are five other things that are supposed to help you remember what you learned eating bread that was big by putting the, the dough directly on the coals, or even better, the coals themselves, obviously after the fire has gone out. Number three, a cooked egg without salt. Number four, someone who often consumes olive oil. And the first list had eating olives, this one has olive oil. And number five, someone who consumed, uh, number four, I'm sorry, uh, wine and spices. And the last one was thought to be good if you have a, a pitcher of water you're going to use for making dough and you have some water left over, that was also thought to be good. And then always some, someone had something else. If you dip your finger in salt and eat it, that was thought to be good too. Okay, and Rabbi Yochanan has something to say about this too. Now, what in the world is going on here? Why is this important enough to put in the Talmud? Most yeshiva will teach that we do not follow the medical advice of the Talmud nowadays. Everyone has their own exception to that. But in general, we don't follow the medical advice of the Talmud. Um, there's something odd going on. You notice that olives in one form or another appear in both lists. So in the first list, it's someone who eats olives. That's supposed to be someone who will forget their learning. Someone who consumes olive oil will retain their learning. Does anyone notice? Let's see, we need to unmute people. Let's just try using the chat for this to avoid too much noise. So, is there any other way that those two items 
are distinguished in these lists from the other items. Do you see anything about olives here or olive oil that's different than what it says about the other items? Do you see something you put it in the chat? Let's see if we can spot it. Uh, Ragil, Cody says, how Ragil. Right, right. Everything else is someone who does this. For all of us, it's one who often or regularly does this, who's habitually eating olives or olive oil. So what's the significance of this? So to understand this, we need some social context here. Okay, olive oil goes back to very early times. As far as we know, very early on in the Middle East, people used olive oil for cooking and also for oil lamps for light. Avram Avinu almost certainly had food fried in olive oil. So it was very Jewish. This is, remember, this is the Roman times we're talking about now in the Talmud. It was very Jewish, very traditional to consume olive oil. Can you think of an example of anyone in Tanakh who eats an olive? Eating olives ever mentioned as a vegetable in Tanakh anywhere? There is no example. Why is that? It was Romans who figured out that although everyone knew that olives are very bitter, and almost impossible to eat when they're fresh. If you treat them with a solution of, of lye or concentrated salt and many changes of the water, you can leach out the bitter substance that makes them so awful to eat and soften them up, what we call curing the olives today. And they discovered how to cure olives. That was a Roman invention. So that was without question kosher, but goyish. Right, it was not Jewish. So here's an interesting case where it's really social policy rather than mysticism, but it's interesting that maybe this bizarre list of folk practices is really telling you something deeper. And, and the clue here is the ragil, the, the habitual part of it, the olives and olive oil. All right, is it okay to eat olives? Of course, is it okay to eat olives all the time? That's probably not a great idea. What's it telling you here? It's not enough to observe halakha, to stay within the, 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 the limits of halakha. What the, what the Barat is telling you, I think, is you have to do more than that. You have to immerse yourself in a Jewish environment because if you are always running off to the latest trendy restaurant to see the latest food fad, and in those days it was olives, and in the 90s it was sushi, and, and in the 60s it was pizza, and all these things that come and go, if you're always running off to the latest trendy restaurant, to, get, to be cool, to be with him, to get the latest thing, latest trend. Yeah, you will forget your Torah because you're not going to be paying attention to it. You're going to be thinking about this cool new thing that's going on. If you consume olive oil regularly, you're eating what would have been thought of in those days as sort of Hamish Yiddish cuisine, right? If you can put Yiddish in the mouths of Roman period Jews, that um, this was tradition. So the idea was it's not enough just to follow the letter of the law. But you have to keep your, your cultural and social context um, Torah-oriented as well. So here's an example where, ironically, the, um, the scientific and historical information that, that the mystically inclined are often very skeptical of seems to reinforce the idea that there is a deeper concept here. And it's not just saying what you would get on the surface here, that these were folk practices or medical beliefs of the time. So it's interesting that. Um, we can fill in and sometimes the, the lines don't always break in the conventional way. As we can see, sometimes the, the scientific evidence, the historical evidence supports the position of those who, who were hostile to science and history. Um, and sometimes it doesn't. So here's an example where it seems that it does. I'm gonna give you another example here where the Torah, or not the Torah, excuse me, the Talmud actually anticipates a scientific discovery by about 1700 years. 
Um, and this has to do with mushrooms. Okay, does anyone know? You can put this in the chat and somebody probably knows. What bracha do you make before eating a mushroom? Anybody know? Someone wrote shakol. Sandy wrote shakol. Right? That's correct, right? Okay, shakol. Not bore priyadama, you would say over vegetables. Why? It's not a vegetable. How is a mushroom not a vegetable? Gamara asked this question. So let's go back to let's go back to our PowerPoint and we'll see something interesting about this there. That is Ramat Rachel again. Okay, and let's skip. Okay, so here's a statement from the Talmud. According to Israel, why? It says because they are not prihadama, they are not vegetables. But the Gemara, you can anticipate the Gemara's challenge to this. What do you mean they don't, they're not prihadama, they're not produce of the earth? Of course they are. They grow out of the ground, don't they? Yes, yeah, so the Gemara answers it's true that they physically grow out of the ground. That's where they're located, that's what they're attached to but they are not produce of the earth in the same way that plants are. Plants, you put a seed in the ground or it gets there naturally, right? The seed sprouts, the roots absorb water and nutrients from the soil. Eventually it produces green leaves. They didn't know about photosynthesis back then, but we would say it performs photosynthesis. And the plant nourishes itself by absorbing carbon dioxide from the air to make sugars and mineral nutrients uh, from the soil that it needs as well. But fungi don't do that. They are not nourished by soil minerals and gases in the air. They're nourished by decaying organic matter. They grow on the ground in many cases. They also grow on dead trees and sometimes even dead animals. But they are not growing out of the ground in the same way that plants do. Now, see what the Gemara is doing here. It's making a distinction between mushrooms and plants on the basis of physiology. That plants are what we would call in biology autotrophs. They, they make their own carbohydrates from photosynthesis. And mushrooms are fungi, they are heterotrophs. They consume external nutrients just as animals do. They don't eat, but just like animals, they need to be nourished with um, organic nutrients from, from other living things. So the Gemara makes the distinction on the basis of physiology. Now, biologically, we have the two kingdom system most of us learned in high school probably, or maybe earlier, right? It goes back to the 18th century. Um, that has two kingdoms, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. There are a couple of animals on the left, a human and a dog. And Linnaeus would have placed all those things on the right in the plant kingdom, including the mushrooms that are there. So mushrooms were considered primitive plants or degenerate plants or some kind of specialized plants, sometimes even parasitic plants, like the ones that the fungi that cause disease. But they were considered like plants. When microscopes were popularized scientifically in the, eight, in the, seven, in the 1800s, people began to see that plant cells and fungal cells have what's called a cell wall around them, a layer of carbohydrate around each cell. That seemed to confirm the idea. However, as biologists develop more information, they realized that it's not so simple, that actually plants and fungi are quite different. Fungi, as I mentioned, are heterotrophs. They're actually in some ways closer to animals. And by the 1960s, a five kingdom system had been developed, including plants and animals, Fungi got their own kingdom. They, uh, fungi, unlike plants, do not have those organs. They don't have roots and stems and leaves and fruits and flowers. They don't grow that way. Some of them don't even have mushrooms. They are heterotrophs, unlike plants that are autotrophs. And then there are two other kingdoms. Protista includes mostly one-celled 
um, organisms that have a nucleus in their cells. So a lot of algae, for example, would fall into that category. Amoeba and paramecium, if you're familiar with those. And the last kingdom at the bottom here, Monera, is the bacteria. So these are arrangements thought to be in an ancestral form. In other words, the first living things are thought to have been bacteria. From these came protista with more complex cells with a nucleus. And from the protista came the animals, the plants, and the fungi. Okay, so the fungi got their own kingdom in the 1960s. This is about 1700 years after that statement in the Talmud. Why did it take so long? A primary reason is that Linnaeus, if you look at his descriptions of plants and animals back in the 1700s, relied almost exclusively on anatomy. His description of any species of plant and animal or animal is in terms of its physical structure. It's an anatomical structure. He did not pay much attention to physiology. So the Talmud had an insight that the biologists were only able to rediscover about 150 to 200 years after Linnaeus published his, his system of classification. And finally, evidence accumulated to the point that Whitaker decided to do this. More provocative, more recent form is based on comparison of DNA and RNA sequences for clues to similarity and shared ancestry, we find a more recent classification so here, the blue and the red branches of this world family tree of living things, the original ancestor down at the bottom, the black trunk of the tree, the blue and the red, which take up most of the tree, are all bacteria. So Woes and his classification based on RNA sequences concluded that there are really two main types of bacteria, what we call bacteria, what he calls archaea, which is another type of bacteria. And then everything else is over on the right. Now, most of the branches off the brown tree on the right there are different types of protists. But look at what we've got here. Plants, animals, and fungi are all bunched together. Now, the way this diagram works, if you want to compare how closely related two different species are, you trace the path to link them through this tree. So for example, to compare how closely related animals are to slime molds, you would add the length of this line here. Can you see my pointer? OK, plus this section here, plus this here. So the length of this. The longer it is, the more distantly related they are. The shorter it is, the more closely related. So animals, plants, and fungi are quite closely related. And the degree of diversity among bacteria is the majority of the diversity of living things on Earth, which is incredible. In other words, the difference between us and a mushroom and a slime mold and an oak tree and an onion is trivial compared to the difference among bacteria. So our way of thinking about this has changed enormously. It's a real challenge to our sense of, of, of you know, human superiority to, to, to see ourselves put in such a minor position here on this, this family tree of life on Earth. Um, but the point I wanted to bring out was, uh, even before that, that, um, that the Talmud's recognition of the importance of physiology and classification would have been a useful insight had any of the biologists of the late 19th and early 20th century who developed all this evidence been inclined to look there. They might have found a clue that could have sped up the whole process but people do not generally look in the Talmud for clues to biological classification. Let's see, we've got a few more minutes for one of my favorite stories here. And if you can fit in Shemitah, people like to hear about that too. So this one is kind of fun, it's a little bit funny. This is a story that is in my Haggadah. I wrote a um, Haggadah that was published last spring before Pesach um, with a commentary based on the history of Jewish food and agriculture. It's called Fruits of Freedom. And you'll find it on my website, torah4.org, if you wanna pursue that. This story found its way in there because it was a wonderful story. So in Masachet Pesachim, the volume of the Talmud that discusses Pesach, 
there's a story about an incident in which one of the rabbis from yeshiva in Babylonia went to a small town where there were not very many learned people to give a talk before Pesach. So everyone came to hear him. They're very excited because they didn't get these opportunities very often. And he told them, when you make your matzah, it, you must use mayim shalanu. Mayim shalanu. Well, if you know some Hebrew, you know shalanu means ours, right? So the next morning, which was the day before Pesach, they all came to him with buckets and said, okay, give us water. We have to make our matzah because tonight is Pesach. And he said, no, 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 you misunderstood. It's not mayim shalanu, our water, it's mayim shelanu, water that has rested, meaning you have to draw the water from the well the day before you're going to use it to make the dough for the matzah. Well, thanks a lot. Pesach is tonight. We don't have that option. So he said, all right, so this time you don't have that option. You weren't able to do it. I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. But in the future, you must draw the water the day before. Why do you have to take the water from the well the day before you use it to make matzah? doesn't say. He never explained it, and the Talmud goes on to tell other stories after that. A, a second statement unrelated to this, many pages later, is an incident in which the rabbis are discussing um, where does the sun go at night? So most Israelite, most Jews at the time of the Talmud still believed in the Babylonian cosmology, which said that the sky is a solid blue bowl, inverted, so it's like a, like a dome over the earth, and the edges are raised up above the ground so things can slip in and out there. During the daytime, the sun slips under the edge on the eastern edge of this bowl and traverses the inner surface of it from east to west and we see it against the sky. At sunset, the sun slips out from under the bowl, goes back from west to east during the night on the outside of the bowl so we don't see it, so it's dark here on earth, and then comes back in in the morning. That was the predominant belief among Jews at that time, is the Babylonian idea of how the solar system works. Ptolemy, a Roman, said, well, no, I think that's not right. I think the sun goes around the earth and it goes under the earth at night. Now this, of course, held on until Copernicus showed the other way around. It was actually the earth orbiting the sun, which was an insult to everyone's sense of importance. So they discuss these two ideas, and Rabbi Huda Nasi, the editor of the Mishnah, says, you know what, I think their idea makes more sense than ours. Because if you go out to a lake early in the morning when it's cold outside, you can see a mist over the water. And that's because there's steam coming up because the sun is under the earth heating the water from below. And so it gets hot and the steam comes up to the top. Now, anybody can immediately see what's wrong with this statement, right? I mean, anyone who's ever gone out to a lake early in the morning knows that the water is cold. And whatever that mist is, it's not steam. It's fog forming because the air is cold. And so the water condenses as droplets of liquid in the air and that makes a fog, right? What's interesting is that in the story, no one objects. No one raised the obvious objection. They just accept what he says and move on. Why? I think because they just didn't care that much. There are no halakhic consequences to this. However, Rashi takes the two stories, puts them together. Why did he? Why did that rabbi in Babylonia say you have to use water that was drawn the day before? Because if you take it the day before and put it in a bucket or a bottle or whatever container you use, it's insulated from the ground. And when the sun goes under the earth at night, it won't heat the water as it will be heating the water in the well. So if you take water from the well in the morning, it was heated overnight by the sun, it's going to be warmer and more likely to make the dochametz, and you're not going to have a good matzah. 
So Rashi connects the two stories. As far as I've been able to find, no one before him made this connection. Today, if you speak to mashkichim who work in matzah factories, they will tell you we are required to do this. So Streitz Matzah, for example, has a huge concrete tank that they fill with water and um, they use it the next day. Now it's easy to do that because most matzah in, in the United States and in most of the world is made between December and February when it's cold outside. So you don't have to worry about this. So they, they fill the tank, the water stays very cold and they use it the next day to make the matzah. Um, about 40, 50 years ago, I think, it was, I think it was 1950s or maybe 60s, Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, who was the head of the Jerusalem Beit Din in the old city, got a question from Argentina about making matzah. They wanted to make their matzah. The problem is the same time of year that we're making matzah, so are they. And it's not winter there, it's summer in the Southern Hemisphere. So what about Mayim Shalano? If you put the water outside overnight in Argentina, in the summer, it's gonna get hotter, not colder, and we're gonna get chametz. So what do we do? So he said to them, look, you, you cannot give up Mayim Shalano, that's the halacha. But he had to, to make this new situation jive with the halacha. He also had to make it practical. So he said, look, you can do a few things. Get a big walk-in cooler and keep the water in there, or add ice before you use it to make the dough, or you can buy your matzah from somewhere in the Northern hemisphere, or, you know, you could move here to Israel and do all the mitzvot in their ideal form as we do here in Israel. So what he did was he was able to harmonize the requirement for Mayim Shalano, which before Rashi's time, no one said was because of the sun going under the earth, or without, sorry, without doing violence to halacha, but also making a practical suggestion that, that they could um, handle in that situation. So we have, um, I'm going to skip the Shemitah story unless somebody or someone really wants it. I think I can take questions now. Amazing, amazing, Professor Greenberg. Thank you so much for this well, wonderful I'm not presentation. A professor, I gave up the uh, the university world to concentrate on teaching and research. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, friends, if anybody has a question for Dr. Greenberg, we'd love for you to jump in now. Poland Spring Dasanami. Yes, right. The idea is just it, it should you, you draw whatever the source is. Get the water into a container the day before you use it. And that certainly is in a container when you buy it. So pollen spring is just fine. I should caution though, if you're gonna make your own matzah, don't just use the, the, the flour from the grocery store. Um, that was milled with moisture and heat. And uh, halakhically speaking, it's, it's already cooked. So you gotta get Pesach flour for that. Who else wants to jump in with a, a science and Torah question? I was thinking of people in Argentina. Oh, for them. Right, they could use it, that's true. But so as Rabbi Frank said, but get it, get your bottled water if you wanna use bottled water, but put it in the refrigerator before you use it. Um, this is a commercial bakery, so they need a lot of water. So they could have used tap water, but they needed some way to chill a large amount of water, um, or at least keep it from getting hot overnight before using it. Other ways, the Copernican revolution. Um, one of the reasons, there were some Jews who resisted Copernicus's idea, and, and one of the arguments for Jews and Christians against it was uh, the, the book of Yoshua, right, that Joshua prays that the sun stands still so he has time to defeat his enemy in battle, not the earth. I don't think this is a big problem, but um, I, I, nowadays we're accustomed to having to to raise the bar on these old interpretations because there are so many new discoveries. I mean, it's, it's easy for us in the 20th, 21st century to say, well, that was fine. He, that was an earnest, honest prayer by Yoshua. God is capable of understanding what he meant, right? When he said, meant, 
let the sun stand still, because in Yeshua's experience, it's the sun that moves, not the earth. And God is really capable of answering that prayer with a miracle. He did seem to extend the day somehow. Um, did the earth stand still? I don't know what happened, but at least his Joshua's perception was that the day was lengthened. So I don't see that one as a real problem. Many people hung on to that. I think more than anything rational, it's discomforting emotionally for people to have to change the way they always thought about something. My grandparents understood it this way. My great-grandparents understood it this way. Why should I change? Um, if this was right, why isn't it in the Torah? So distrust of science. So that was a, a, a kind of a- Dr. Greenberg, uh, Sandy writes, has anyone ever proposed not using water that stood overnight since it seems to arise from a scientific misunderstanding? There are other, halacha, are there other halachas that change over time. So it's very interesting. This is, many people ask that question when they hear the story. You got to be careful about this. The Talmud does not say that's the reason. The Talmud just said, records a story that he told people to do this. It's a totally unrelated section that talks about the, the sun going under the earth at night. Rashi, hundreds of years later, put the two together. And we've relied on him ever since because in his day, it made perfect sense to put these two beliefs together. Even people who thought that, that the, who accepted the Ptolemaic solar system would accept it. So it wasn't really a problem. Um, but we don't really know what, what, where this halacha came from originally. Just, we just had this halacha. There are many halacha like this that we don't have a specific reason or source for. So just as we can't say, it doesn't make sense to say that it's because of, um, of the sun warming the water overnight. We don't really know what the, all we can see is that can't possibly be the reason. It just doesn't make sense anymore to believe that. Um, so we don't know if, what the reason for this is. So we continue to do it. And all the kosher certifying agencies require the mashkichim to, to make sure this is being done. Dr. Greenberg, what are some examples where we often think of um, religion moving too slow in some ways uh, to adapt to scientific discoveries? What are some cases where, where Torah maybe moved too fast and, and then science backtracked and Torah had to backtrack as well? Uh, well, the first is easier to think of. Um, I, one of the classes, of course, is evolution. Um, People don't like this. Uh, it's something, I, it, 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 this is, for some reason, this has really seized hold of the American imagination. It's interesting, I, I read once about Russia Yeshiva in Israel, when it first became popular for American, young Americans to spend a year learning in Israel, and the Russia Yeshiva were saying, what is this with the Americans with science and Torah? We don't even think about that much over here. In Israel, it's politics and Torah. That, that's the issue there, right? What is gonna be the role of Torah in, in Israeli politics? Americans have this issue about it, and I think it has a lot to do with um, the reactions not of Jews or Judaism per se, but of the American low church, the anti-intellectual low church to, to book learning, university learning, and science in general, is a skepticism of, of scholarship. And uh, I spent a year in Colorado Springs, and there's a, a huge population there of um, right-wing fundamentalists with their own radio stations, they even have their own zip code in their neighborhood. Um, and you know, I would listen to them on the radio, it was fascinating. And one of these preachers finally said, you know, people ask me, why do you care about evolution? Anyway, it happened millions of years ago. What, what difference does it make? And he said, I'll tell you why. If that story about Adam and Eve didn't happen, then there's no original sin and there's no Christianity and I'm out of business, right? He, he was very honest about it. This is his concern. So, um, you know, there's a Jewish version of that, but I think, you know, if Jews for centuries have always understood those stories, well, not all Jews, but many Jews have understood them literally, um, 
it's it's a challenge to you know are we really kind of waving our hands is this really legitimate actually it is a rambam actually and, and other medieval authorities many of them said that everything up through noah is not to be taken literally um that doesn't mean it didn't happen it means but don't don't take it so literally there are many ways to understand this and the rambam even thinks that um the six days of creation were not even periods of time they're just conceptual categories so, um, so that would be an example where there's been a lot of resistance. I would say the overwhelming majority of Jews today accept uh, some form of the theory of evolution. Um, they each struggle in their own way to reconcile it with, with Breshit. Um, and the resistance is primarily among people who believe that they can live without having to uh, respond to science. Um, we have a question here from Rabbi Hodi, Rabbi Hodi Nemes asking if you can tell us the Shemitah story even in just a nutshell. Okay, so I've been working on Masechet Shvit since before the last Shemitah, which gives you an idea of how hard it is. The Yerushalmi is very tough, the manuscripts are in terrible condition, and it's hard to even get a shot of even what the text means, let alone what anyone thinks about it. Uh, but there are some interesting things in there. So one of them I found, uh, so the, strictly speaking, Doraita, from the Torah, we are supposed to stop most forms of agricultural work with annual plants. So we're not talking about tree crops here now, um, on Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of Shemitah year. But the Gemara discusses having a sort of a buffer period just to be on the safe side. You don't go plant every plant seeds the last day of Elul because they're not going to take root until it's already Tishrei. Um, so they discuss, is it three days, three weeks, three months? What is this buffer period? What's fascinating to me is that they give different times for different crops. Um, in Talmudic times, rice, at, rice paddy rice, which we think of with India and China, was grown in northern Israel, and the Rishalmi discusses how, how they would make the rice paddies. There were extensive waterworks there that were destroyed during the Crusades, but it was possible to grow rice in Israel, and it had its own harvest season. Now, people would also harvest aquatic reeds for use in making, not only for the, the schach on top of the sukkah, but to make baskets and mats and all kinds of daily things that were made out of reeds. The time to harvest the reeds is later in the fall in, in Cheshvan or in Kislev. And the Gemara actually says, this is an exception. You can harvest these after Rosh Hashanah, even though the Shemitah year has begun, you can harvest the reeds in, in, later in the, in the fall, which is fascinating. And it's a kind of self-referential halacha because not only is the halacha being flexible here to reflect the agricultural conditions that they're harvested later in the year, the reeds themselves are physically flexible and are a popular basis of midrashim um, that we see about the, the, the virtue of flexibility. And uh, we read in Mishle, it would be a, you know, you should be flexible like a reed and not rigid like a cedar and so on. Um, so it's a thing that kind of embodies its own virtue. It's a little bit of sort of natural philosophy where the reeds are physically flexible and the halacha on their score is also flexible to allow us to harvest them during, uh, during Shemitah. Okay, the, the, the question about backtracking, I'm not sure what, that's difficult, I'm not sure what that would be. I mean, well, one thing I could say about that, so we had this idea that I was advancing here that um, we have to change our shot sometimes based on contemporary conditions. We can look at earlier times when people did this as well. For example, um, if you look at the Hertz Chomash, uh, which is based on ideas from the late 19th and early 20th century, um, it talks about evolution and it tries to make a parallel between the six days of creation in Breshit and the different periods of geological history. That in the beginning, there were these primitive organisms and aquatic organisms, and later there were land organisms, and that 
that the six days correspond to six periods of geological time. They don't really match up very well. But this was an attempt based on the, the scientific understanding of that time. We also see uh, people talk about the rakia, right? What is this rakia in the sky that separates the waters above and below? Um, and there was an attempt at one time to identify it with the ether. Uh, so there were 19th century harmonizers of science and Torah. No one believes in the ether anymore. That's a discredited hypothesis. So sometimes the scientific explanations based on a, the knowledge of a particular time become quaint or obsolete uh, as science evolves. And then we have to come up with new explanations. So I, I like to tell my students, I, I understand the rakia as the, um, the heat of vaporization of water. It's the energy required to convert it from a liquid to a gas. So the upper water is water vapor and lower is the liquid. Now someone will come along in 20 years and explain why that's a silly idea and it means something else altogether, but that's fine. We have to live on our own time. And that's why it's okay for Rashi to talk about mermaids and it's not okay for us. Um, so we have time for just the last two questions in the chat. Uh, the first one says, how did our concept of heaven shift after the Copernicus revolution? Yeah, so I, I think the idea that was tenable in, in earlier, earlier centuries that, that, you know, olam haba, that heaven is something above the physical heavens, that there's a place in the sky somewhere. And we see it in humor and folklore, but it's very difficult for anybody to believe that anymore. So I think we, our concept of heaven in, this, in the sense of olam haba or Gan Eden is more of an abstract concept now that we, in disembodied souls will enjoy this you know, realm of delight, but it's not in a physical location. Um, and the final question says, isn't the natural inclination for people who study science and Talmud to discard the Talmudic explanation with the proven scientific facts? I would say it's a common inclination. I think it's an unfortunate one because I, but I would like to see what I've been sort of advocating here is for some creativity to raise the bar. When we think we find conflicts, we need to work a little harder to find, maybe to find Nupshat or to understand the science of today is not only different from the science of yesterday, it's different from the science of tomorrow too. And have some humility about, I wouldn't say scientific facts. We don't use that word much in science. I would say scientific theories, which means hypotheses with lots of support but they can always be overturned. So I think we have to remain skeptical. And um, uh, if we believe that Emmet is Emmet, then we will find uh, you know, some ultimate understanding for the two of them. So I want to show you just my last slide briefly. Oh, here it is uh, before we quit. So if you find this sort of thing interesting, I want to invite you to look at my website. You can learn there about the Haggadah at TorahFlora.org. You can join my email list if you like for announcements of my events. Uh, and publications and things like that. I'm planning to be in Southern California in February. Um, and that's another option. Okay, so I wanted to get that in there. Um, well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. John Greenberg. Um, thank you for everyone who attended. And this was absolutely a honor to learn with you today, the depth of knowledge that you provided. Sure, thank you so much. I was glad to, to join you all today. I hope you all enjoyed it.